Are you Irish? You, you seem like you could be Irish. This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Stewart-Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Welcome back to Gotham TV Podcast, the unofficial podcast of Gotham and the home of the DC Universe. I'm Derek, I'm one of your hosts. Hi, I'm John, your other host. And this is episode 39 of Gotham TV Podcast, uh, covering the fearsome Dr. Crane, episode 14 Ooh. of Gotham. Yeah, the fearsome Dr. Crane. Yeah, no, um, and very fearsome he is as well, but driven by fear. Yeah, yeah, I like I like this episode uh, overall, really, really, really good. Uh, I also like the fact that, as you probably heard in our intro there, I like uh, that Donald Logue called out uh, someone that's Irish. Uh, <laughs> so, we've, uh, so we've added that to the start of our show. Definitely. <laughs> she had... Um, Fine ginger locks. Fiery red hair. Fiery red hair, exactly. That or Scottish? Possibly, possibly. And hopefully you've subscribed to the show, so you're getting our episodes now that we're releasing them every week. You can subscribe if you haven't already. Go to gothamtvpodcast.com slash iTunes, and you can subscribe on iTunes. Or you can subscribe in any good podcast catcher like Stitcher, Player FM, or any other good podcast catcher. Right. <laughs> uh, and as always, you can email us your feedback on the shows and on our episodes to feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. So before we move into our discussion of the fearsome Dr. Crane, uh, a cast member of Gotham um, has sent in a very special message for us. And so here we have Gotham's medical examiner with a short public announcement. Hi, this is Philip Hernandez. I play the medical examiner, Dr. Guerra, on Gotham. I was set up by Nygma for stealing body parts in the episode The Fearsome Dr. Crane. The body parts scene was shot from multiple angles. The parts were stuffed into the locker and they'd come tumbling out at random. Each take, I had to quickly find the arms, legs, hands, and pick them up in the same order and hold them exactly the same way to maintain continuity from shot to shot. I thought screaming like a big girl would be really funny, so I added it and the director loved it. If you're wondering what I'm whistling as I enter the locker room, it's Master of the House from Les Mis. I thought it'd be funny for the medical examiner to be a musical theater nerd, and he's also happy to be Master of the Morgue again after finally getting Nigma suspended. The Gotham cast and crew are exactly as you might imagine, first-rate in every way and a joy to work with. I'm hoping to come back soon, hell-bent on revenge in an episode where I can beat Nigma within an inch of his life with a severed limb. Thanks a lot for having me today. Thank you, Phil, uh, Philip Hernandez, who plays, obviously, Dr. Guerra, the um, medical examiner in the GCPD. We hope you all enjoyed that consultation with Philip. Um, it was really nice of him to send it in. It was very generous. Uh, it was kind of quite last minute. But it was a great little uh, check-up with the, the doctor, there, <laughs> I thought, um, about that, that whole scene and, and how it plays. And it's interesting to hear that kind of perspective. I mean, juggling all those limbs into the right position and picking them up in the right order. And that requires some skill. I did like also the little bit of uh, information about the the lay miserable uh, whistling yeah. as well. It was yeah, great. Definitely love to get love to get a, a bit of a, an Easter egg that we wouldn't have noticed or didn't notice uh, for this for this episode about about what song he was whistling when he was coming in. That's a great little uh, great little piece there. Yeah, I mean that was really interesting. Um and it was great just to hear that he was a you know, a musical theatre nerd. That's mm-hmm. kind of really good, um to be honest. I 
think it will be interesting as well to see if there is any other further tussles or spats between um, the these two two men, him as uh, Doctor Guerra, and mm-hmm. obviously Ed Nigma. That kind of rivalry on the science front is is brilliant. I love yes. it. Um, Perhaps he will return with a limb to uh, to beat. Uh, Enigma to half death. <laughs> and which limb would be best to beat someone with? I reckon. I presume a fist um, or a leg. Maybe maybe a, a bit of weight behind it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Send us in your thoughts if you uh, have any ideas on this uh, morbid <laughs> theme. But we are talking, uh, you know, chief medical examiner of the GCPD, mm-hmm. pathology, and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thanks again. Uh, Philip uh, Hernandez, who plays Dr. Guerra, that's really generous, and thank you so much for, for sending that in. If you want to follow Philip, he is on Twitter at philip24601, that's P-H-I-L-I-P 24601 on Twitter. Uh, you can also go to his website, where he dispenses some great advice for uh, for aspiring actors. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. At philiphernandez.net, that's P-H-I-L-I-P dot net. We will have the link up in our show notes, obviously, if uh, if you want to go and follow him and, and want to go and get some tips from him. Uh, really good guy, and thanks so much again, Philip, for sending on that, that clip for us. With that, on to our discussion about the episode, the first in Dr. Grain. So, the first one, Dr. Crane, was directed by John Baring and written by John Stevens, one of the regular writers for uh, for Gotham. Um, he wrote Selina Kyle, The Balloon Man, The Mask, and now the first one, Dr. Crane. So, he's written uh, four of the 14 episodes so far. That's a pretty good, pretty good standard. Um, John, do you want to give us the synopsis? Just before Fish sets sail to safety and pastures new, she reveals to Moroni that Oswald is working for his rival Falcone. This prompts Moroni to take Oswald on a road trip to test his loyalty that has potentially crushing consequences for the Penguin. <laughs> At the same time, following Selina's reveal to Jim and to the young Bruce Wayne that she did not see who had murdered Thomas and Martha Wayne, Jim is released from his promise to the young Bruce Wayne to solve the investigation of his parents' murder. All the while, Jim and Harvey are involved in a number of romantic entanglements and encounters as they investigate a series of brutal murders where the adrenal glands have been removed from the victims' bodies for no obvious purpose. Whilst Ed Nigma and the GCPD medical examiner escalate their professional office spat over who has jurisdiction over the bodies, a murderer is revealed, the one and only Dr. Gerald Crane a man obsessed with fear and his own phobias, whilst trying to overcome them for his own sanity and for the sake of his son, Jonathan, who his father believes is also racked by F-E-A-R, fear. <laughs> very good, John, very good. Um, yeah, so a good, uh, good episode, I think, uh, this time. The first of our real two-parters. Um, next week's episode will uh, we'll continue yeah. on the story, so, uh, so a really good one. So let's continue on with our normal format of talking about five case points of the episode. So what's your first case point, Detective O'Neill? <laughs> my first case point for who this is episode. Irish and doesn't have red, fiery hair. No, only in my beard when I grow it occasionally. <laughs> um, but uh, my first case point for this one is um, Fish calling into Moroni to reveal Oswald as a traitor. So one of the odd things about the show is obviously the timeline of it is a bit kind of murky. So a lot of the time people don't take out mobile phones and and call up other characters on the show and tell them things uh, that, that they should know. So one of the great things in this show is Fish essentially taking going to a payphone to call up Moroni and tell him exactly what she has found out about, about Oswald. Um, yeah, it's that timeless quality that um, 
Danny Cannon had talked about, they they didn't want it to be honed down to any particular time. So whilst Fish is at a payphone, we see later on in the episode Oswald on a mobile mm-hmm. um, ab- ab- about to be flattened <laughs> to the same thickness as his mobile phone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So just thought I, I, th- I thought this one really stood out to me that, you know, finally the characters are doing something that you would expect to happen. You know, if, if Fish has just found out that... Um, that Oswald is a traitor and is betraying her and Maroney, even though there are there is bad blood between the two of them. Of course, you t- pick up the phone and call Maroney and tell him that his right hand man is actually Falcone's right hand man. I thought it was a good little contrivance to use at the beginning of the episode that uh, that this is what this is finally where Oswald is going to get his comeuppance. Uh, he's going to be thrown out of Maroney's organization uh, because of what Fish does. So I think that's a good little a good little scene there. You know, uh, she wanted to do something to take out Oswald, and that's what she does. She sets Maroney on him. Yeah, definitely, and I I love what happens then with Maroney. I mean, David Zayas has always been um, for me a great uh, Sal Maroney. Mm. I think he has that sort of domineering, sort of aggressive presence of, of a Don or a, a wannabe Don. Uh-huh. You know, you see the frustration that he's ambitious to to take over Falcone's mantle. Um, and I love the way they go on this this road trip, which is kind of a loyalty test, really. But in particular, I do like um, this whole... The, the, the secrets game that they play with one another where you ultimately just hear that obviously the penguin does not like oatmeal mm-hmm. and he does not like uh, coffee yeah. either. Yeah. Um, and that they do this, you know, back and forth uh, of secrets, which ultimately leads to Oswald showing his hand and, and pulling a gun on Salmaroon. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. But there's also a really good um, touch earlier on in the episode where Maroney, uh, uses a standard phrase where he says a bird in the hand is worth nine tenths of, is nine tenths of the law, and the look on Oswald's face is just instantly God, this guy is an idiot. He should not <laughs> be running this family. It's very much uh, just a little a little scene, a nice little performance from Robin Lord Taylor, where he's essentially you can see in his eyes he's gone. God, let me take over this uh, this guy's organization. He is an idiot and shouldn't be running it, <laughs> which is a great little moment. And those tables obviously then get turned, get turned. In, in the cabin. Yeah. Yeah, which is really good. Yeah. That's my point. It's really just about uh, just about Fish and how she does still play a part in uh, in the takedown of Oswald Cobblepot in this episode, despite the fact that she was leaving at the end of episode 13. So, uh, so she's still one last little kick to Oswald before she leaves the city. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, well, my first case point is I'm going to be fairly obvious now here, mm-hmm. um, and that's the Crane family mm-hmm. and the introduction of the Crane family into the world of Gotham. You know, it's it's one of the the big future baddies in Jonathan Crane but we only get a glimpse of him here um, Mm -hmm. at the swimming pool we really are seeing his father in action and I love this kind of backstory that's being told of the Crane family here, at least this initial bit that we're getting and that's why I can't really wait until the part 2 episode Mm -hmm. where the Scarecrow, where I presume it really starts to, to develop further to why Jonathan Crane becomes the Scarecrow. But I, I love this whole obsession with fear that um, his father, uh, Dr. Gerald Crane, has got. Um, it's, you know, he obviously has got something that in, in the um, the group that are discussing their phobias and trying to work through them. He talks about how he's racked with guilt and with fear that is crushing for him. And he feels that he has passed this on in some way, genetically or just by his behavior or 
to his son and he's concerned for his son that his son will be sort of immobilized by by fear mm -hmm. as well which obviously is the scarecrow's main modus operandi is to disable his his victims with fear with the fear toxin yeah so i, I love and um, this I, I also think julian sands who plays gerald crane is excellent here i i mean i really like julian sands i Known from, um, I think it's Merchant Ivory stuff, Room of the View, where mm -hmm. he he plays um, a character, and I can't remember his name, but it's very, um, I think at the time, very uh, upfront uh, scene in a, a pond mm -hmm. um, in the English countryside. I remember, um, which got pulses racing um, with Julian Sands there. <laughs> And then he's obviously been in David Fincher's and um, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, mm -hmm. in one of the sort of iconic sort of. Uh, British films, The Killing Fields, about um, Cambodia yeah. and Pol Pot there. So, uh, he, you know, he's got some good acting chops behind Excellent. him. And you can see it here. He's really menacing to his victims. And I think that's uh, a really good introduction to the Crane family. Yeah, and I think he's also quite menacing to his son. One of the things that really stood out to me is, as you said, the, the scene when he says, you know, I think I'm passing it on to my son. I think he is. I think he's terrifying his son. Um, the moment where he says, you know, I'm, I'm murdering this girl and you know why. Um, we're murdering her to to make the world a better place, to save people from this type of fear. You can tell Jonathan's a bit freaked out by that, you know, just in that one scene that he has. Um, yeah, really good, really good. Uh, yeah, and there's a nervousness to um, Jonathan Crane entering into the swimming pool, you know, Oh, the meter ran down. What do I do? Like yeah. this uncertainty that he's, he has, he has to come in and obviously see his dad performing... Um, a murderous act on mm -hmm. um on the head of the the, the phobias group um you know but it, that whole uncertainty it's a nice little touch you know I, I didn't know what to do the you know i when asked why is he there he said, i just didn't know what to do yeah and the the parking meter ran down you know i need more money and i had to move the vehicle all this different kind of sort of um, just stresses that he seems to have over minor insignificant things, which is a really yeah. nice little touch, I think. Absolutely. It leads me on to my next point for this episode. It's the method that Dr. Crane gets his, his victims. I think it's a fantastic idea. I don't think I've seen it before. Um, essentially going into a, a, a phobia support group choosing the victims that he has for um for to, to murder to to harvest their organs essentially uh, i think it's a brilliant idea so he gets the the opening of the episode where he gets the guy with fear of heights puts him on top of a building on a chair cuts the cuts the uh the rope and hangs him that guy must have been terrified but the fact but anybody would be but the fact that it is also his biggest fear is a brilliant uh, a brilliant idea absolutely getting the guy that's got fear of pigs getting the guy in the pig mask and putting a pig towards him obviously terrifies that guy as well a really good really good one and then obviously getting miss mullins and bringing her to a swimming pool her biggest fear and saying that he's going to drain her just all brilliant ideas yeah definitely and uh, for those of you who are interested the fear of pigs or swine is swinophobia so, okay yeah. yeah yeah that makes sense which given our, our bacon uh, bap uh, a couple of episodes ago <laughs> we certainly don't have any fear of pigs definitely not definitely certainly not. not when they taste so so great <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, uh, I, I do think uh, just that that whole concept for for Doctor Crane of of how he takes out his victims and how he finds them from the phobia group is a really good, really good touch. It's uh, a great touch, yeah, definitely. I, I love how they sort of bring that into the backstory of, in a sense, again, the Scarecrow yeah. and this idea that it's 
it's a harvesting of the fear adrenal gland um, is a great idea for yeah. people who have numerous different types of, of phobias. Yeah. yeah, and the also the important thing about it is it's an anonymous support group. So anonymity is really important to people that are going for support in these kind of groups. But how does that? How can that be turned and twisted into being the worst thing possible? These are anonymous people. Therefore, a killer could be hiding amongst them, and nobody will ever be able to find them because all they have is the description of what they look like, but they don't have any kind of name or address or anything like that for them. So that's that I thought was quite an interesting. No, exactly. Approach. And I think we also do have to kind of say that Mullins is it? I, Miss Mullins. Miss yeah. Mullins. She has. A fear of swimming pools rather than water. That's right, yeah. So it's, it's not aquaphobia. Yeah. It's swimming pool ophobia. Yeah, I wonder what that one's called. But, yeah, probably not a uh, probably not a very common one, I suppose. But uh, but you never know. I suppose I've been to I've been to quite a few swimming pools, and I would have a bit of a fear going into the water in there as well, but not for the same reason, probably. That's probably the toxic <laughs> mi uh, mix of um, people relieving themselves and old plasters. Uh, possibly, I would say. yeah, possibly. <laughs> so a fear of of swimming pools is simply being phobic of swimming pools. So. Not a great phobia, right. I don't think. But, as, a, as I said, it's, it's probably because that not that many people have that uh, particular fear. So it's very specific, exactly. Yeah. Like, and in fact, we do find out later on um, from Miss Mullins that it ha was because of a particular event in a swimming pool um, that she had as a kid that triggers this fear when she now... Uh, looks to do 64 lengths or something right. of, of the pool. So. <laughs> or just the one. Or just the one, um, if she can at all. So it's a very specific one for Miss Mullins. Mm -hmm. So, John, what's your next point? I think, again, we see we see pigs again in mm -hmm. this episode. Um, first of all, there's the kind of little pig that Gerald Crane is stroking to, 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 to frighten um, and to induce the phobia of the second victim. Mm-hmm. He's stroking his little uh, baby pig in the streets, um, and then the guy who has the second victim sort of tied up um, on, on a chair mm -hmm. is wearing a big pig mask. And again, here is another pig mask. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of talk about Professor Pig in Balloon Man. We had a pig mask. Yeah. We had the theory that Fish Mooney's sort of love interest, who was beaten up uh, by Falcone's thugs that he would become Professor Pig mm -hmm. um, because of the facial disfigurements that, that he um, received. Then the, there's now, again, another pig reference coming into play here. Mm -hmm. so, uh, it, it's almost like a little motif is beginning to form um, across the episodes of Gotham, but in particular uh, with episodes that John Stevens has written. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if he has swinophobia, and he's, uh, he's trying to work through it by writing episodes that have a bit of a fear of, uh, of pigs involved in them. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. So, I mean, my point on this is, do pigs maybe have a bigger role to play in the first season of Gotham. There has been a lot of talk about Professor Pig. Mm -hmm. Does he become, um, at some point, one of the big bads for, for this um, season? Mm -hmm. Or is leading to that? I mean, maybe not. Maybe it is just simply a motif that's being used. But there is the character Professor Pig, and there is now a, a reoccurring motif coming, which is the pig mask. Um, and pig references, so it'll be interesting to see. I think, yeah. and it's certainly if you anyone out there has got any comments on this or any theories about the potential appearance of Professor Pig, what you think? 
that'd be interesting to know because there is a lot of piggy themes going on now. Yeah, absolutely. Including our bacon butty reference. <laughs> so even we're bringing it in. <laughs> uh, I think my next point on the show uh, for this week is um, a kind of a, a, an apology for my, my slightly negative response last week to, uh, to um, welcome back Jim Gordon. What I'd said there was that when something big happens within the GCPD, the show Gotham tends to kind of wipe the slate clean for the next episode. Uh, it's very specifically said by Sarah Essen that there is now going to be an effect uh, on the characters within the GCPD because of what Jim did at the end of that episode by arresting Flass and by annoying a lot of, the, a lot of his friends within the GCPD. Now people like Sarah Essen and Harvey Bullock have to watch their back. Um, a great line from Zabina Guevara there where she where she tells Harvey to step back from the edge because somebody could just push him over, um, you know. But Harvey still will stand up for, for his partner again, you know. Harvey has really turned the corner now. He's starting to become um, a, a real defender of Jim Gordon's practices. And I think that's really important. So I'm glad to see that they did take on board that... Uh, kind of, uh, they didn't take on board my criticism, but I think it was a criticism of a lot of people at this, for the first half of the season that things that happened in an episode didn't play out or didn't lead into the next episode as well as they could have. And I think they've really taken a done a good job here to uh, to lead into this episode with what happened in the GCPD last week. Yeah, no, I, I think so, and um, it, it's good. And I think it, it's not only with Captain Essen; it's with Doctor Tompkins as well. Mm-hmm. There's a nice through thread being developed between these characters in in a serialized manner just as much um as sort of the big mobster storyline that's occurring with uh, Falcone Maroni um and the penguin so mm-hmm. i really like to see that because again i think it harks back to finding out more about the gcpd that element that we certainly um, found really interesting and, and really piqued our interest um, from the Gotham Central comics. Mm-hmm. You know, to get an idea of these supporting characters that have some really important storylines and can have some really powerful storylines as much as the, like we saw with Falcone, Maroni, Fish and the Penguin, but also now, say, with the Crane family being introduced, those bigger bads um, from the Gotham universe. So I think, yeah, it's a really positive development, um, certainly. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing how they deal with that through line for the next episode, given that this is a two-parter. Yeah. Because we, you know, we are seeing even Harvey um, and his romantic expressions coming out, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's really good to see these kind of things develop. And uh, So my apologies to the show. They've obviously uh, stepped up their game uh, in the second half of the season, uh, and I'm delighted to see it. It's, uh, it's um, going to be much better for it, I think. Uh, John, what's your next point about the show? My next case point really kind of flows from what you've just said mm. there, but it's specifically um, with regards to Jim Gordon and Jim's romantic motives. I think with his relationship with Leslie Tompkins, his romantic motives and and how he behaves in that romantic situation is becoming much clearer to me. Mm. Um, and I think in the first half of this um, season, those motives and how he behaves in a romantic setting with his fiancée Barbara Keane was unclear to me, mm. which meant that a lot of the big plot points that occurred between those characters didn't seem to me to have much meaning because I didn't quite know where um, he stood. I think what we see in this episode, which I really, really enjoyed, was Jim's um, romantic awkwardness um, with 
women, ultimately. And yeah. I think that's probably coming again from his military and army background, possibly. And mm-hmm. um, again, it's all feeding into his backstory and where he comes from and how he lives his life outside of the GCPD uh, within Gotham, sort of off camera, so to speak. And I really like that. It harks back to where he has the, um, you know, fairly uh, temperature rising locker room encounter with Leslie Tompkins. Mm. He, um, you know, kisses her they get very close and romantic in there that makes an impression on leslie and that comes out here in this episode where jim late at night asks to meet her um in in a a restaurant all of a sudden he's throwing case points and case files at her uh, and asking for her professional opinion Mm -hmm. about um about the job it's he can't leave the job in in the office Mm -hmm. uh, at the precinct and the great thing is that just the way Leslie Tompkins pulls that out. She goes, well, I've put lipstick on. You've asked me to come out and given what happened in the locker room, you know, I put lipstick on. I right. thought we were going to maybe you know, reenact that um, and, and we're going to see more of the OC white jersey. <laughs> and, um, and now you're asking me for my professional opinion. Like, I don't understand you. And I think that's a really nice sort of um, reflection back on Jim yeah. that, in a romantic situation, he's actually quite awkward. Yeah. Um, he doesn't quite know how to behave um, around women. He maybe does prefer the professional hustle and bustle with his partners in, in the GCPD and other detectives mm-hmm. and so on. That camaraderie uh, within the GCPD. And I like that. That really, to me, exposes Jim's weakness when it comes to women. Yeah, and yeah. I, I like that a lot. It kind of struck me as kind of an explanation for, as you say, why he's why he's like that with Barbara, why he, why he treats Barbara the way he does. It seems like they're maybe high school sweethearts. It was very easy for the two of them to to meet and get together and have this long term relationship. But he sounds like someone that hasn't dated much. He hasn't, you know, complimented a woman on her on how she looks in the evening. This kind of stuff, you know. It, it sounds like he's really taking a big step here for himself. And yeah, he doesn't he doesn't sound like someone that is, um, that's very used to 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 going out on dates. Um, so I, yeah, definitely like that and having. A little bit of that kind of character development come out of the relationship with with Leslie and himself is really good. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. So, another case point from you, Detective (laughs) O'Neill? Another love point. This episode was all about the love, really, wasn't it? It Um, was very I Heart Gotham. Yeah, yeah. Um, So for this one, I really, I love Harvey and Miss Mullins. I love his his way of cracking on to... uh, to Miss Mullins, the head of the phobia group, uh, you know he he starts off as we said earlier on with the uh, Irish. You seem like you could be, which seems like a very attractive point for uh, for Donald Logue's character in the show. Um, it's a really interesting idea of him going to the phobia group to uh, to tell them all that they're going to be safe. Yet he joins the group and tells them uh, a personal secret about himself, which I don't know whether it's true. He tells them that he's constantly in fear of dying in an alley alone. And decaffeinated um, coffee. And decaffeinated coffee. <laughs> yeah. Great line, great line. <laughs> but it. I don't know whether it's true or whether he was just trying to make himself seem vulnerable in front of this uh, lovely creature, Miss Mullins. Um, yeah, Scotty Mullins. Yeah, I like I like the fact that she uh, that that he says, you know, if she's not the murderer, I'm definitely in there. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, 
that's a really good one. But he becomes the superhero in this episode. You know, she is drowning. She is in the swimming pool. She's dying. And Harvey uh, doesn't doesn't spare a moment and jumps into the swimming pool and saves her. So he is now he is now her uh, her Rescuer. superhero. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I thought that was really good to to bring a little bit of backstory in for for Harvey. And um, we did mention it last week that there is a, obviously a love there between himself and and Fish Mooney. It wasn't brought out out that well during the first uh, thirteen episodes of the series. Um, but that's probably what he was probably there probably was a lot more to that storyline that we just didn't get in the show. Um, it's nice to see that now the fish has left. He's moving on and we're getting to see a little bit of more character development for Harvey. You know, I like that. Definitely. Any other points about the relationship between Harvey and Miss Mullins from you? No, I just thought it was really nice again. I mean, I really enjoyed Spirit of the Goat um, because of how that brought out uh, Harvey Bullock uh, and his private life and his previous professional life at the GCPD Mm -hmm. more. And I really like that. It really adds a depth to the character. And I think with the fish moment at the end of the last episode and now with scotty mullins where he's he's kind of seeing someone who he fancies and and could make a go of it you know um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a romantic way and in a relationship way and he wants to pursue that it's a nice um uh, character trait to see from harvey bullock and um, you know maybe miss mullins will be his downfall but at the moment you know He's um, ticking all the right boxes, uh, superhero, saviour, mm-hmm. um, prevents her from uh, dying, you know. Potentially there's the red hair Irish connection that, mm-hmm. you know, he's happy with. So, you know, at the moment it's all positive, um, yeah. you know. And as I said, uh, uh, he's created himself as a vulnerable character in front of her as well. So uh, not just a superhero, but a superhero with vulnerabilities. What? How could a woman resist uh, yeah, exactly. Good. Um, John, uh, your next point about this episode. Well, I think let's move this back to the the dark side. Really, I think it's the increasingly creepiness of Edward Nigma in the mm-hmm. GCPD. Let's move away from superheroes so to the the beginnings of supervillains or or big villains. Mm-hmm. And I think really, I mean, firstly, I have to say, get your hand out of that corpse is probably <laughs> the best line um, of the episode. Um, in terms of the startled look on um, Ed Nigma's face as he's caught, you know, red-handed, mm-hmm. pardon the uh, pun, um, <laughs> by, by Captain Essen and then the medical examiner, who he's obviously got this professional uh, or maybe even personal spat with, I just think it's really good. And what he then goes to do is not normal. You know, he puts a load of body parts into the medical examiner's locker in order to make sure that he gets reinstated and the medical examiner gets fired after he has been suspended because of working on the corpses. Even that in itself is a freaky element that... He's dealing with dead bodies, which is not his job description. He is forensics. The medical examiner, the coroner, looks at the dead bodies. And he just can't resist playing around with them. That morbid fascination that he has with them. And it's just this increasing creepiness um, of, uh, of Ed Nigma. Even down to the small, finer points, such as the little pencil, um, which... You know, he's taken from Christine Kringle and, I mean, it's been just sharpened down and down and down to where there's, what, about a centimetre of pencil and then the the rubber header, Mm -hmm. you know. 
it's an obsession. There is this obsession, and it comes out so well, so nicely in the writing for Ed Nigma, which I I think you know he is beginning to take on more and more of, of these little OCD traits, even just the. The, the continuing obsession of riddles that everything has to be done in a riddle mm-hmm. is great. I'm absolutely loving it. And I do think we have to repeat this line that Captain Essen said um, as well here. There! See? I told you! Oh. Oh dear. Get your hand out of that corpse. Now. I was just passing by and I, um... Uh, I was I was just curious. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> I sorry, won't happen again. Promise. Yeah, it's such a great line and such a great moment in the show, especially <laughs> when he slaps his head with the with the glove afterwards and leaves the fingerprints of blood on his head. I think that's uh, I think that's hilarious. And um, where is he getting the body parts from? That's uh, he's clearly stored them for a couple of months in case this possibly happened. Um, you know, it's it's very it's very odd that uh, that he would have access to that many hands and feet. Um, you know, unless he's been cutting them up for a couple of months. I know the morgue is easy to get in and out of, as Leslie Tompkins talks about later on, but even they shouldn't be storing that many body parts, I would think. But in regards to the pencil, um, that's clearly an excuse just to get to go to talk to Christine again. The fact that he's kept her pencil for that long um, means that he does have an obsession with her, definitely. But I do like the scene. I really do like that he goes and talks to her. And, you know, there's another little ray of hope later on in the episode where uh, where he comes back and says that he's uh, he's been reinstated. And she says, you have to buy a new pencil for me. That's a nice little, uh, a nice little touch there. Um, another way in. Again, there's the romantic notions mm-hmm. coming in. I mean, everyone is getting romantically entangled in the GCPD. Yeah. Did we know when this episode aired in the UK in the US? Was it around the was it around Valentine's Day? Was this possibly a Valentine's it Day episode? Been. It could have been. It could have been. Wondering. It makes me feel like it was. One little point about the medical examiner though. Jim obviously makes the comment that he wants to work with Ed Nigma. He's he trusts Ed because the medical examiner was the one that said that the guy that died with a an ice pick in his back in the last episode was a guy that committed suicide. So obviously he's a useless medical examiner. Yeah. And another little point about him, we have the return of Joker Watch. How are things at Arkham? A little less interesting since you've left. Oh. How are things at the precinct? Um... Well, actually, that was what I was hoping you could help me with. Uh, We've got this case, and I can't understand what exactly our perp was doing, and our medical examiner is kind of a clown. So he's a clown as well. Yeah. Exactly. Well, is he the Joker? Is he the Joker? Yeah, yeah. So he's kind of a clown. Um, You know, he's trying to... Trying to stir up a little bit of a little bit of um, friction within the GCPD. He's trying to do a bit of crazy chaos by by saying that someone that was a uh, that was clearly a murder victim was a uh, a suicide victim. You know, is it possible that he could be the Joker? I still don't think so. I think he is being pressured from on high in relation to is this a murdered body or is this a suicide victim? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not entirely sure. It is. I do think that is um, a throwaway kind of remark by Jim here. But I do like the idea that Jim and um, and Ed Nigma do have this connection. And what I also like is after 
he has been suspended by Captain Essen, who keeps repeatedly warning him you mm-hmm. know, not to tread on the toes of the medical examiner. And calls out that she does like Ed as well, you know. Exactly. She, you know, as as they leave, um, Enigma just kind of like looks after them and says, but I found something. Mm-hmm. Like he is a better forensics and uh, coroner person than the actual medical examiner. Yeah. He yeah. is good at his job. Um, and it seems to be that, you know, Jim is the only one that recognises that. Yeah, but I still wouldn't plant body parts in a, in a co-worker's locker if, <laughs> if I was good at my no, job. No, exactly. And, and this is this is the unhinged element that <laughs> mm-hmm. is increasingly coming out. You know, even just the ever-increasing OCD-ness um, that is happening um not just in terms of riddles but picking onions out of um the out of his chinese right. taking the pencil and just being so precise and neat about it you know it is this idea that you can imagine how he folds his you know handkerchiefs or pajamas or mm. suits or shirts or anything that it's all very very particular and as soon as that doesn't work out for him you can see he the frustration and, and the the slight cracks that begin to appear, which I think is what we have here in his way of getting back at the medical examiner. Yeah, yeah. Creepy and odd, but really good. Really, really good. So my next point in the episode is the music. I call it the music quite often on the show. I think they're doing a great job. Um, the people that are responsible for choosing songs and obviously the soundtrack, I think, is really good uh, for the episode and, and the score as well from by Graham Ravel um, is really, really good. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, but it, I think occasionally they pick songs that do speak something about the scene, and in this episode they've chosen two. Um, so I wanted to talk about them. The first one is um, Love Will Tear Us Apart, which is uh, Nouvelle Vague's version of the Joy Division song from the 70s. Um, love this version of the song, really slow tempo tune. It's played in the scene where um, where Leslie Tompkins and Jim are sitting in the restaurant. Um, I like the fact that it is Love Will Tear Us Apart. It is uh, a scene that you know showing the development of their relationship yet the song in the background is telling us that it's a doomed relationship uh, essentially exactly which i think is quite an interesting choice it forebodes things to come no doubt yeah yeah so i think that's certainly if barbara comes back in on the the scene that's very true very true um we know she's coming back at some point so a woman scorned potentially potentially yeah um so i thought that was a really good choice um and then the Closing scene for Oswald, where uh, he get, he hops on the bus with the uh, with the gospel ladies to bring to be brought back to Gotham. And um, the song that they're singing there is called "Trouble in My Way," which I think again is a really good choice for Oswald. He's now been pushed right back down to the bottom. He's he's no fish anymore. Um, but she's destroyed his relationship with, with Maroni. Um, he does have his relationship with Falcone, but he's going back to the city essentially with trouble in his way, with things that he's got to clear up and things that he's got to take care of. So I think they're two really good choices of music for this episode. Big time. And I mean, I loved the, the gospel music. I thought it was, well, I love both sets of music, but the gospel music, I just thought the fact that you know the Penguin was rescued by the church bus, mm-hmm. I just thought was really good um, little scene. It reminded me of the, the nuns with Butch Gilzean. Again, I don't know, religious elements make me laugh, obviously. Um, <laughs> first of all, it's parishioners going to on the church bus to church and uh-huh. singing their hearts out. And they've got this criminal mastermind. And on the they've bus got a criminal them. mastermind on the bus. And just the yeah, the 
what the music means. I love the fact that it has a meaning to mm-hmm. the predicament in both cases. And then, of course, you know, I am a big fan of Joy Division, so to hear Nouvelle Vague's um, cover of it is really good, and I, I agree. It must surely um, sort of speak to what is going to happen to this relationship, right. maybe from an external party, or maybe even just down to the awkwardness of Jim, that she's unable to deal with his particular brand of romance yeah yeah potentially potentially a uh, slight side note on nouvelle vague have you ever heard uh, their stories essentially they are a cover band they they specifically do very famous songs and cover versions of them essentially the lead singer is, is um i'm trying to think where she whether she's from france or whether she's, she's definitely from mainland europe but she's normally given the lyrics for a song and just asked to interpret them and sing them whatever way she wants to uh, she never normally has heard the songs before she's recorded her version of them. So this version of, of Love Will Tear Us Apart is very different to the Joy Division version oh, big that we time. know. Big time. Uh, and the reason for that is because she'd never heard the Joy Division song before she sang this version yeah. of it. So Excellent. So on, on with your final point, John. I come back to Jim, actually. I have two points now, two case points on um, Jim Gordon. Mm. And for me, I think there's a really significant moment here with the release of jim from his promise to the young bruce wayne to solve and track down um the murder and murderers of of his parents thomas and martha wayne and this is a really important scene i think because um i think you know pardon the pun but it means that jim gordon isn't hogtied given all the piggy uh references that we have had so far in this episode he's not hogtied by um, this huge event, he's not weighed down by it. You know, he can be set free from that enormous task. And and to an extent, we do have that mantle uh, in part being passed to the MCU in Episode 7. So I think this is a really big uh, event for, for Jim, that release. And essentially, the young Bruce Wayne saying, you know, I will deal with this investigation on, on my own mm-hmm. now um, with, with Alfred. And um, what I'm hoping is, is that I, that if he needs now to call um, on the GCPD, he will go to the MCU, who Jim, in a sense, passed over this investigation uh, back in that episode. I mean, in part, it was because he thought he was going to die That's and right. would never come back. So, And he didn't. So obviously, he didn't need to pass the mantle exactly over to the MCU. But I do think there was a an opportunity lost where the MCU could have been involved here um, as well. You know, that Bruce not only sort of released Jim from his promise, but the involvement of the MCU potentially, mm-hmm, if need be. Or that moving forward, they're the people that Br- the young Bruce Wayne and Alfred call upon when he conducts his own investigation. Yeah, potentially. Potentially. Like, he's been, he's been told that, uh, that Jim trusts them implicitly, um, which I think is quite good. So hopefully, if Bruce needs someone to talk to about about the case, he may he may call on uh, Christmas Allen and uh, and Rena Montoya to uh, to help him out. Um, it doesn't sound like Bruce has stopped trusting Jim. I think he just doesn't believe he can get the job done because he has so much going on himself. It seems um, you know it seems like he's put a, he seems like he's th- now thinks that Jim is putting this on the back burner that he's not going to investigate it with wholeheartedly anymore. I think you're right, but I also do think that Bruce is quite pointed at jim he says you said you would find the the murderers you promised me and you haven't managed to to get anywhere on this case yet and the one lead that you did have and he calls it out selena is now essentially saying 
she didn't see anything mm -hmm. um, of any worth or any note. So that's why I release you. And look, I will do it from now on. I do think there's a bit of a pointed mm -hmm. um, call out here yeah. um, at Jim and more broadly at the GCPD for not finding um, his parents' killer. Yeah. So... I also think it's partly down to the fact that he still feels rejected, probably from Selena Kyle. So that's still weighing on um, him a bit. So Poor. it might be a bit of a reaction from that. Poor broken-hearted Bruce. Yeah. So I do think it's not all just uh, fluffiness and, and nice between the two. I do think here um, there is a bit of a pointed remark, but I do think it's down to him being rejected by um, Selena. So. It'd be interesting to see what happens. And as I say, it would be really nice to see the MCU involvement with this investigation, mm -hmm. as was called out in a previous episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so overall, pretty good episode? I this thought it was a good episode, yeah. yeah. No, I'm really pleased to see um, it, first of all, being a two-parter. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited about um, the next episode, which is Scarecrow. Yeah. Um, I loved to see the cranes being introduced. I thought Julian Sands played a really good good character there in Jonathan Crane's father, Gerald mm -hmm. Crane. I think the whole investigation bit was really solid, really well done, as you said, um, about the harvesting of the adrenal glands. It really was straight from a horror movie. Yeah. Um, you know, it was excellent. And I loved the whole... Um, I thought Jim got a really good episode here about both with the romantic entanglements, but also with his backstory and with his relationship with uh, Bruce Wayne yeah. and Wayne Manor, in a sense, more broadly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I definitely agree. Julian Sands, particularly, is a real standout. When you get him on board, you definitely want to use him for two episodes, so I'm delighted that they're doing that. Um, the character of Gerald Crane did appear in the New 52 version of Batman, so we have got an appearance of... Um, of Scarecrow's father in the comic books, which is Excellent, really good. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but I think this is where we're going to get the first development of fear gas, which is what Scarecrow uses to scare his victims. So could get a bit of that in the next episode. But, um, you know, by harvesting the adrenal glands at their, I suppose, at their highest operating uh, time, he's going to be starting harvesting some something from those that could eventually lead into the creation of Scarecrow and his weapon of choice, uh, which is which is fear gas. So hopefully, we'll see a bit of that next week. Yeah, as well. definitely. See a um, bit more of Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. So this for me is a bit of a difficult episode to judge because I want to judge the two episodes back to back. I, no, really. I agree. Yeah, but I did really enjoy some of the character development that's in here. As I said, I was a bit harsh on the show last week at its attempts at character development. Sometimes fall a bit flat and don't come back up in the following episode. This time, we're definitely seeing some character development come in from last episode and going to lead into the next one. So I'm delighted about that. For me, one of the small little notes that I kind of picked out from this episode was definitely um, were the first victim who was hanging from the building. And mm -hmm. um, that building, I think, also appeared in the Daredevil trailer for the Marvel Netflix show. Wow. I think it's obviously quite an iconic building. It's got the brick, sort of a brownie, a dark brownie brick with kind of a cream stone sort of uh, edging the top and presumably around window frames and so on. But where the scene of the crime was was being investigated by Essen and Harvey and uh, Ed Nigma. Where Harvey threatens to throw Nigma off the roof and where Sarah Essen tells Harvey that he could be pushed off the roof by yeah, another guy. That, yeah, that opening kind of um, scene after the original sort of crime being conducted by um, Gerald Crane... Mm -hmm. That building, 
I don't know where it is, but you know, it's got a great straight line view down one of the principal um, avenues in New York. Mm -hmm. It's got sort of a massing of skyscrapers behind it, um, but it's really distinctive kind of brick and stone on on the building. and we see it here in the opening crime scene of Gotham. And I do believe it was also in the um, Daredevil trailer for the Marvel Netflix. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know New York. I don't know what the building is. But it's obviously quite a, a classic um, location for, for filming in New York mm-hmm. because of its setting and the views from it. It'd be interesting to know which one it was. I don't know if anyone actually knows that. Anyone from New York, if you're listening in. Give us a shout. Let, mm-hmm. let us know. That would be great. Um, and of course, you can enter into our competition then if we mention it on the on the next episode. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really really good point um, about that about that building about about the connection with Daredevil. Both the shows are filming in in New York, and I think I'd made a point before that um, with so many TV shows filming in New York, we're going to start seeing a lot of crossover with uh, with some of the uh, the iconic places uh, in New York being used for all of these TV shows that are being filmed there. So good catch on that one. Yeah, eagle-eyed John. Absolutely. So I think that's the end of our review for the episode. Thanks very much for listening. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. Um, just to come back on that competition that I mentioned only a few moments ago, um, you can go on to uh, com forward slash competitions, and there is all the information there, uh, about the competition to win a, a signed Christopher Ominga print of Oswald Copplepot a.k.a. the Penguin, along with other Gotham goodies. Um, I so... want to know what these other Gotham goodies are. Ooh. We're going to have to start. <laughs> I know, to start I know, to... I know. You do, don't you? Uh, we're going to have to start parsing out what they are over the next couple of episodes so people know it's it's a good prize pack this time. I think we need to keep the um, tension up on it, actually. Really? really? Yeah. Okay, well, you let us know, listeners, whether you want to know some more about uh, about what's in the prize pack. Uh, email us at feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. So with that, on to this week's feedback. Fascinating. Fascinating. Our first piece of feedback is from Dylan Exner again. Uh, thanks again, Dylan, for contacting us. We mistakenly took his Joker watch last week to mean that he thought that Drew Powell was the Joker. Uh, in fact, what he was suggesting was that it was Fish Mooney was the Joker, that, uh, that Drew Powell's character, uh, Butch Gilzean, was commenting that uh, she could possibly be the Joker. Ah, okay. So, yes, I totally had it the other way around as well. It'd be interesting if she was. That would completely throw open the barn doors for Batman. Yeah. It would rip up the rule book, so to speak. We know that Jada Pickett-Smith is leaving the show at the end of the season, so um, so perhaps she's going to go out with a bang or go out with a smile, as they say. She may do indeed, but I think it would be quite a remote uh, possibility that she would be um, the Joker. Thanks very much for your feedback, Dylan. Our next piece of feedback comes from Detective Daniel Butcher. Um, again, we missed out on this last week. We just got the got the email in a little bit late uh, for when we were recording our podcast. Uh, Daniel goes on. Daniel talks about the episode "Welcome Back, Jim Gordon." Um, he says you made a comment in the previous episode that this could have been the end of the original season order, and it really did feel like it could have been the season finale. Uh, totally agree with you, Daniel. As we mentioned in last week's episode, um, "Welcome Back, Jim Gordon" did end with that moment of Fish Mooney walking down the pier, going on a boat and getting off and, and leaving Gotham, presumably for good. Um, it could have been the cliffhanger at the end of season one, definitely, um, for a return in season two. Absolutely. And I think even we see at the start of this episode with Fish phoning up Moroni to sort of highlight Penguin's betrayal of 
and him of Salvador Moroni that that's almost like just that final last bit of shuffling of, of that old um, deck and, and sort of the new jigsaw I think really from here on in will begin to to take place mm-hmm. and it still involves the mobsters but as I say it's it's all change it's a complete change in the dynamics fishes on the back foot and um, the penguin seemingly is rising and in ascendancy but maybe has just got his uh, wings clipped then again two waddles forward four waddles back and then, um, and then crushed in a car compact again. yeah exactly and um, so really good to to see those changes taking place within the storyline and the story arc that we've seen since uh, the start of the season. Yeah, yeah, and Daniel goes on to say, am I the only one worried about Bob's wife and kids? He really seemed like an engaged and loving father. Uh, that's Bob the executioner, I suppose, or the uh, the torturer of fish, uh, where he talks about the fact that he does have wife and kids and then uh, unfortunately gets... Um... A bullet in the head? Yeah. yeah. Bang. Victor Zaz, one shot, Victor, straight in the head. And presumably... <laughs> Another notch on the old forearm of of Victor Zaz. We didn't see that this time, actually. Well, sorry, on Welcome Back, Jim Gordon. We didn't see him do the little carve like I think we did in a previous episode. Mm. We saw that motif of his. We didn't see it here this time after he shoots Bob, torturer. Yeah. It is kind of the Stormtrooper effect, isn't it? You know, he's got a, a wife and kids. But happens to be an evil torturer. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So thanks very much again, Daniel, and sorry for uh, for not getting it in time for um for last week's episode. Um, we had some Twitter feedback. We unfortunately weren't able to live tweet the way we usually do on a uh, on a Monday night. Um, but we did get some Twitter feedback from um from some of our followers on there. We got some feedback from Mrs. Cobblepot, who says she loved Gillian Sands in Leaving Las Vegas. We had mentioned earlier on in the episode that we know him from um. The Killing Fields mm-hmm. and from a room with a view. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, Leaving Las Vegas, which is he played the Latvian immigrant Yuri, who was the abusive pimp to um, Sarah, played by Elizabeth Shue. And um, unfortunately, he does get murdered in the film <laughs> by the um, Polish mobsters who are after him. But uh, yeah, spoilers out there. Sorry. <laughs> I sort of flagged that a bit earlier. But Oops. another great film. Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah. So it's great to um, see that, you know, he has meanings for some of our other listeners as well. It's really good, actually. Um, again, Julian sounds absolutely brilliant in this episode. Can't wait to see him um, in, in the next one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Part two. We also then received an answer back, actually, from Zabrinia Guevara uh, regarding the, the question posed by Derek as to whether the Miranda rights read by J.W. Quarters who plays um, Detective Alvarez in uh, the show, whether that means you're actually arrested because he reads those Miranda rights to Detective Flask. And Sabrina Guevara comes back and goes, heck yeah, that's the answer. So there we go. Yep, the captain has said so. So if uh, if you get arrested by J.W. Cortez and the guise of Detective Alvarez, you are actually arrested. You could go to prison. Thanks very much for that, Sabrina. And thanks, uh, <laughs> Captain Essen, for your response. <laughs> But for this week's episode, then, uh, Sabrina Guevara came back with a bit more feedback to us because we obviously loved the line um, from her to Enigma, mm-hmm. uh, surrounding, um, as well, Dr. Guevara's uh, sad demise, or at least his initial victory over Enigma. Gotta play it again. 
Oh, dear. Get your hand out of that corpse. Now. And she concurs. She goes, best line ever. I think we had tweeted out that it was a classic line, mm-hmm. and obviously we've mentioned it um, on the episode here. But she comes back, couldn't agree more, best line ever. Fantastic. Clearly enjoyed delivering it as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks very much, Sabrina. Thanks to be. Thanks to you for being one of our regular contributors. Yeah, exactly. And it must just be one of those moments where you're handed the script for that week, and it's you read it and you go, "Okay, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love this. I have to deliver this line. All right. This is awesome. So fantastic, fantastic." Our final piece of feedback comes from comic book movie guy on, on Twitter. Um, that's Chris Barnes. Thanks very much for your feedback, Chris. What he asks us is, what are your guys' thoughts on the idea of having time jumps between seasons progress further, quicker? So I went back to him personally and said, uh, personally, I prefer not. Um, maybe just kind of a Walking Dead style, a couple of months in between seasons, where just to kind of account for the actors aging. You know, we've got some quite young actors in there, Devin Bazous, Cameron Beckendova. Claire Foley, they're very young actors, and over time, throughout their teenage years, they're going to start growing up very quickly, and they're going to start jumping uh, what what will look like years over the course of the summer break or the break between seasons of filming. So, but for me, I wouldn't I wouldn't like to see them handle that by having three or four year jumps and suddenly have a Batman in the city. Uh, personally, I like the idea of them telling a story that we haven't seen in six, 76 years of Batman history. I kind of like the idea that we're seeing something brand new here with Gotham. And we're going to start seeing more new as the seasons develop. So I don't want them to jump into just redoing stories that we've seen in the comic books. I think they're doing a good job so far. I think I'm on the same uh, level as you. Though. I personally don't want to see time jumps to that extent of suddenly you have a Batman or suddenly Bruce Wayne is you know 20 or 21 mm-hmm. or those kind of time jumps particularly for the younger versions of some of these iconic characters. However, and you make a good point, that these younger characters are going to be growing up quite rapidly. Changes can occur really quickly. And so I would hope that, obviously, Gotham is responsive to that because David Mazous at the moment is doing a fantastic job as dealing with Bruce Wayne. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing even remotely to suggest that that's going to change. So... If, for example, he physically does have a a growth spurt, for example, um, and gets another foot or so uh, onto his current height, it might be interesting that the writers could potentially be responsive, not to advance 10 or 20 years, but to advance maybe 18 months or something Mm. in in, in the plot. And let's not forget, Gotham has used it once before in Spirit of the Goat for... um, Detective Bullock, where they go back 10 years uh, with him and a previous partner. Mm-hmm. So they have used that technique of, of um, a flashback or a time jump, in this case backwards, uh, for um, Detective Harvey Bullock. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason to suggest that they're not or can't use that uh, technique for anyone else. But I kind of don't want them to do that uh, for the principal young characters at yeah. all. Yeah, for the show itself, definitely. Um, I think they've, ha- as I said, I did mention Walking Dead, they've handled it quite well on there. The character of Carl, who's on the show, Carl, uh, <laughs> who's on the show, he started out at about, you know, I think age 11, a very young kid, and now if you compare him from season one to season five, he does look significantly older, but only in teenage years, and they've accounted for that by doing things like a six-month jump between season one and two, a three-month jump between season three and yeah. four, 
you know, uh, that that's kind of stuff. Yeah, that's exactly how I mean they should deal with it, yeah, rather I, than doing long flash-forwards or flashbacks, you know. Exactly. I don't want to suddenly see Ben McKenzie with grey hair and a moustache, just where we've skipped the whole period of time where he's developing his personality or all the traits that we're expecting out of Gotham. So, uh, but thanks very much um, for that feedback, Chris. Uh, just Absolutely. He, thanks so much. He did come back with a point on it. He did say, I don't want it to reach the time of Batman Suits, to be honest. I'm kind of treating it in my head as a prequel to the Dark Knight trilogy. Um, yeah, so I yeah. think that's a, a really good point. And thanks again, Chris, for that. Um, if you want to send your feedback into us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gotham TV Podcast. You can also email us at feedback at GothamTVPodcast.com. Yeah, you can also leave us feedback or comment on our Facebook page. That's Gotham TV Podcast. Um, you can like the page and leave us feedback there. Or you can also leave feedback on Google+. Plus. Again, just search Gotham TV Podcast and leave a comment or your thoughts there. Um, and, of course, you can always leave a review for us um, on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM, or any other good podcast catch-up where you can leave a review. Yep, you can leave um, any reviews at gothamtvpodcast.com forward slash iTunes for any iTunes reviews. And, of course, anybody who leaves us feedback or gives us an iTunes review will be entered into our competition to win that Penguin print uh, and some additional prizes, which we will be revealing very soon, won't we, John? Uh, yes. <laughs> join, in, <laughs> join us again next week for our discussion about The Scarecrow, episode 15 of Gotham. Um, this episode is directed by Nick Copas and written by Ken Woodruff again. He's uh, he's written some of the earlier episodes of yep. Gotham. So, uh, yeah, good to, see, uh, good to see a returning Gotham writer again. Be good to see that. Can't wait, actually. I'm looking forward to this second part. And one final thing before we say goodbye. Um, this week, a member of the MCU has had a birthday. Mm-hmm. And so we would like to wish the birthday girl, Victoria Cartagena, who plays Detective Benny Montoya, uh, one half of the MCU, partner to uh, Detective Christopher Allen. Mm-hmm. And is also our Gotham TV podcast announcer, as you will always hear at the start of the Exactly. <laughs> we want to wish her a very happy birthday. Um, you know, we've had a great time uh, interviewing her and Andrew uh, on this show and having the interview with Legends of Gotham um, and the little games as well that we played that time. It's always a pleasure finding out her thoughts on Gotham and the process of doing these TV shows. So again, very happy birthday. We hope you have a great day. Yeah, a huge happy birthday to you. And thanks very much. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much. Bye. Gotham TV podcast. Do not cross Alan and Montoya. No.